Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 97 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? Yo, it's Clay Gober and I play bass for Polyphia. So that was my first question. Polyphia, that's how we're saying it, right? Yeah. How many people think it's Polyphia when they meet you? I prefer to just pronounce it Metallica, but <laughs> now nah, normally uh, Polyphia, I think, is usually like the Uber driver pronunciation of it. It's a great name. It's a great band. I'm sure you get this a lot where I came into the band maybe a couple years ago, and this is my existence. It's brutal, which is I'm into a band and I go and check out where they're playing. And usually when that moment happens, they had just come through my city. And that's exactly what happened with you guys. I think you had just played Montreal and I was like, I missed it by a week and a half. I was completely broken up about it. Yeah, dude, that's always how it goes. <laughs> Sorry you missed this. Well, I'm not going to ever miss it again because I happen to think you are creating some of the coolest music out there. I love weird music and you fit the bill from my metal passions to my jazz passions to my hip hop passions. It's great to have a band like yours be out in the world we have now. I'd love to know, how do you describe, like when someone doesn't know who you are, how do you describe the music? Yeah, normally I think I just say it's like pretty hard to describe, but... Normally, I'm, I'm usually pretty lazy about that. So I'll just say like rock and roll. You know, I think there's like you can go one of two ways with that. You can try to over explain. Well, it's like, you know, kind of like rock with some trap and hip hop elements. Or you just say music, you know, pretty much. So I usually I'll just say like rock and roll. I don't know. How do you think you're mostly described as? Would you say metal progressive? Is that what you hear most of the time? I hear all kinds of shit, dude. Math rock. That's Math my rock is one. Well, yeah. yeah. Oh, that one hurts my feelings. Yeah, I don't know. Prog with the electronic elements. Yeah, I don't know. They're Amazing to see how that genre has not only gained a lot of respect, but gained a lot of musicians who are playing more in that space. When I was younger, and I'm much older than you are. <laughs> You got beat up for listening to this type of music. This was not the cool music. It's amazing how people really are open to much more complex forms of music. Do you see that at all from when you started listening to music to what you're creating? Yeah, I think the interesting part is that like with the internet being a factor now, listening to progressive music as it currently stands is not so much like being a Star Trek fan as it kind of used to be not to like toot our horn or anything, but I think that's like one thing we're trying to do. And one thing you see, you know, you see like sort of communities develop around certain things like music in this instance and what kind of like would otherwise be more of like a niche comic con sort of thing, like is more accessible. And we've tried to, make us as an artist, you know, more accessible in certain ways than like other people of our caliber tend to be in terms of like trying to wear clothes that look 
fucking cool or, you know, whatever. Blending yeah, all that shit together, you know? The, the Comic-Con culture is interesting. I'm a big nerd when it comes to that stuff. Nice. And it's amazing to see it hit in the way it hits, where you still have this weirdness to it, where the collectors wish Comic-Con was just about buying comics the way it was, but it really is so Hollywood with Marvel and all of that. Music seems to have that same vibe too, where it used to just be that the pop bands had the mainstream, but success of your band would be a great indicator that you can have bands that come from different edges have a more mass appeal. There's something really interesting there. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess kind of like Comic-Con sort of culture, which I'm not beyond this. I used to be quite the snub-nosed sort of like Star Wars fan, very like, um, like especially metal music can be really elitist, you know? And when you start to kind of color outside the lines in certain ways, you can, you can get a little bit of flack for that. And that's interesting because it's kind of, it's meta in the sense that metal music is kind of like this outsider sort of thing. And then when you kind of take the concepts of what make it that, and then you do those things within those lines. And then you're coloring outside of those lines. People don't really know what to make of it. And that's when it's like, you see that, okay, oh, well, like people can be possessive over kind of this thing of theirs. Like once it, you know, once Star Trek becomes Taylor Swift, well, that's fucking awesome because you're taking Star Trek to so many different people. But I don't know. I don't know if I'm making sense with that comparison, but. No, you are. The analogy I would say is if you had asked me when I was 10 or 12 years old or told me that there'd be a live action Doctor Strange movie or X-Men movies, I would have said, there's just no way. Like I'm one of few people that gets beaten up for loving this type of culture. And yet we live in a world where I don't know what's worse, having all of this stuff or not, because a lot of the times it just doesn't live up to that feeling that you have of what made it so special there is something very much there in the culture for sure oh yeah dude on that no man i'm so over marvel movies dude i Me too, uh, I'm lost i have not by my own accord been like oh dude let's go see this new marvel movie like in just such a long time so i don't know i don't know what that says about me in the context of like doing what i do but i remember Thor Ragnarok came out on streaming and my reaction was I didn't remember if I had seen it or not. I couldn't even tell you if I had seen it or not. And I love this stuff. That's sad. That's when you really know that they're just on the conveyor belt. Well, I can't not ask you if you've seen Andor and what you think about it then. The new Star Wars one. Oh, that, um, yeah, it's like a Netflix one, isn't it? Um, Disney like Plus. Disney, Disney Plus. Yeah. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah. No, man, I haven't. I don't think I've watched any Star Wars since I think like season, t- I think it was season two of The Mandalorian came out like somewhere toward like the beginning of the pandemic. And that's, I got down with the first season of that show, but um, I don't, I don't know that it like really, really kept me. I was really, uh, I felt really positive about that show. Like I wasn't a fan of the new movies. And so like when that show came out, it was like, it was encouraging 
Because it was like, okay, well, they have so much canon to play with. Like, what are we going to get to see here? I don't know. It didn't keep me. But I think that show is like a spinoff from the dude and Rogue One, right? I'd love for you to check it out and then let me know. Because so many people who are more of the purists, and I, I think you and I might be aligned on that. <laughs> it's really something different. I mean, it really is. It gives you a little bit of hope. Purist would be a good way to describe like where I stand and to a fault too, because I think it's it's interesting, like people who aren't so attached to the franchise kind of have more of a chance and are more free to like, oh, this thing that I watched, it's cool or is it cool? But I'm I'm kind of like a slave to my preconceptions with <laughs> a lot of that stuff. I'm a big snob. I I I'm very possessive over over my Star Wars, especially because, like, I don't know, I grew up playing, like, all the games and shit with my dad, and I'm remotely familiar with a lot of the kind of extended universe sort of canon, and just so, so like, watching the Disney effort was just, like, it felt like there were so many, like, missed opportunities yeah. wasted on, like, trying to recycle stuff. Yeah, you're not alone with that. So let's, we're here to talk bass. Let's talk yeah. electric bass. One of the things that usually happens when I have these conversations is I've got a lot of my own canon that I can do in research. But when it comes to you, Clay, there is not that much. So I think this is a great opportunity for people to really get where you came from and how you play the way you do. Let's start off with the origin story. When did you first pick up the bass? Where were you? What kind of bass was it? Yeah. So I, um, first bass i picked up was a it was my little brother's nothing really crazy here it was a, i think it was a red squire p bass out of like a starter kit and uh i played guitar starting from like probably around age 11 riffed around for years on that i think i started messing around with my brother chris's bass when i was like 14 or 15 this is kind of scattered, sorry, but I actually like picked it up and started messing around with it like heavily when I was like 16 or 17. I had a a friend whose band needed a bass player and I played guitar for years and like, you know, if you play guitar, you can get around on the bass. And so that was just my gateway into it. Nothing too special. Well, I was going to say there's a bit of a standard story there, that 14 to 16 time frame. There are a lot of guitarists. Can somebody please play the bass? There is a lot of that, but it usually fades. For most people, it faded for me as well. What was it that made you think, I'm going to continue this? I'm going to keep going down the road. Who were you playing with at the time? Is it the guys in the band now? What was it like? No, actually, um... Interestingly enough, I wish there was some kind of like fucking crazy story of like passion in here that just like kept me around or something. But I started playing with those guys. It was like a high school band playing like pop punk sounding sort of music, which I'm not proud to admit. I played with them for a few years. I remember there, it was funny. There was always this like, wow, Clay needs to be in a metal band. Like, he just looks like he's unhappy with this music. Like, he's driving, like, a Ford Pinto in a way that it shouldn't be driven, you know? It wasn't 
it was kind of like, oh, dude, cool bass player. But like, what is he like? He needs like a different band. All the while, like my interest in bass and like kind of what I could do with it and how I could like manage to stand out. And the music I was playing was kind of like growing and cultivating. But I think I um, that was my first band. And I, I met a couple of the guys in Polyphia when I was around. Uh, I just turned 18. A lot of my journey with the bass guitar was after I joined Thea because I I think a lot of it has been like, you know, obviously the guys that I play with are fucked off in the fucking head. Just totally mad, mad, mad players and sort of being led into that world and, you know, just writing to that has, you know, I've been faced with a lot of opportunities to grow that I'm really fortunate with. Maybe I'm reading between the lines and tell me if I am. It sounds like you found yourself in a position where you had to catch up or figure out a new level of playing or a different way to play, or is that not how you felt? I would kind of, I wouldn't, you know, out the gate be like, oh yeah, I got to fucking keep up. But no, dude, that was totally, that was totally it. Especially with like, and we can get into that at this at some point, but like, especially with like my sort of style the name of the game for me has always been like trying to open the door that would lead me to like figure out a bunch of shit that I can use to kind of apply to this music and play with. So when you meet the band, where are they at? Are they predominantly at that point, a metal band, not experimenting as much? Are they the crazy players that we hear today? Or are you jamming on Metallica and Alice in Chain tunes? Like what's happening at that point? When we met, we were all in our respective ways sort of past the time where we would have been like, oh, dude, you like Black Sabbath? I love Black Sabbath. Tim and Scott were, I don't, I don't know what they were listening to at the time, probably like gent sort of stuff, like a lot of animals and... Um, sugar. Yeah, a lot of Meshuggah and a lot of stuff like that. I didn't even like really hear that much hip hop like in the car with Tim or anything, you know? I guess sometimes, but yeah, they were not even instrumental yet. They had two vocalists, one of which was like a friend of mine. And that was kind of like my, uh, my connection to, to meeting the dudes. But yeah, they were playing off just material off their first EP, which was like death metal influenced a shitload of blast beats. It was not ironically anywhere close to the point where like you would show it to your dad and be like dad you're gonna love this like this is fucking awesome now we got the dad market like totally down like anyone's dad can hear at least one song by us and be like damn sweetie these kids are kind of talented just the stamp yeah. of approval from Rick Beato right that's yeah thing. we were definitely like on our foo-foo lame shit as far as like our sound went and then like right after I joined or sort of as I joined, that's when I was enlightened as to what Tim called the master plan, which was to fire our vocalists, get a singer and then become the Beatles basically. But things turned out a little differently in more ways than one. So I'm curious about that because it is unique to not have the singer aspect, what doesn't make it unique is that it feels similar to me when I really dig into the music to what Tool's done in the sense of Maynard 
is an instrument. He doesn't stand as a front man. Even the way it's visually presented, it's presented as every aspect is its own instrument that makes the song. So how do you make that switch? How do you think about it as a musician? It seems like a big leap to say, we're going to be instrumental. I mean, that's a big leap. Yeah. Well, we definitely, we figured out this whole thing as we went along. Whether it seems to some people like planned or not, the plan originally was to get a singer. Now with something like Tool, you'll, we'll take for example, especially in the context of progressive music, with something like Tool, it's very progressive. Like you can do different things in terms of like using the voice as an instrument. You can kind of go spacier sounding and like more ethereal shit down to the more punchy, like hard rock style vocals. And it also brings to mind abstracting the concept of what progressive music even is, because like we couldn't do that. I remember the conversations surrounding who the fuck we would like finally pick to be the singer. The idea was like, okay, it has to be the best it, part of the music. It has to be, you can't listen to it thinking like, oh damn, like I wish he would like shut the fuck up so I could hear this or this or this. It, ha- it would have to be undeniable. And we couldn't, I don't, I don't know if we just couldn't find someone or what, because we were also like way smaller back then. So our network of sort of accessibility was like much more limited. We basically like put up like a YouTube video titled vocalist search auditions or whatever. And we just, I won't even go into all the shit that we fucking got from that, but (laughs) it was just a different time. And I think as time went along, we realized, you know, once again, going back to the idea that we really figured this out as we went along, we kind of just decided one day, like, yeah, I think we were getting ready to do our first record. We were writing for the first record and we were just like, okay, well, this is a, this is going to be instrumental. We did an Indiegogo fundraiser to fund the thing. And like, all these things are coming together and it was just kind of like, yeah, we're, I guess, just going to do this without a fucking another guy. And so it's, I, it's, I don't know, it's been a really fun challenge to try and, um, even with the way that we've like, especially on this most recent album, tried to incorporate vocals, still maintaining like an edge of sort of experimentation, you know, like talking about abstracting the term progressive out of it. Well, it doesn't mean it has to be free form, open, weird shit that you can't understand. And I think that's where the writing comes in, the music, because like we're able to do a bunch of different things and make a marriage of like a bunch of different sounds or even a few at a time that you haven't really heard before that like has an edge where you would say that like, not only is this good, but this is progressive in the sense that like we're finding cool things that haven't been done before and doing it in a way that hasn't been done before, especially within the constraints of what people would consider like a progressive rock band. It is kind of strange when I think about Remember That You Will Die and the music and how it comes together, especially with the guests who are doing vocals and other interesting sounds. 
it almost feels like it was advantageous to not have found that singer because that locks you into a sound where your ability to really do different things is somewhat unbounded now. You're not even dealing with a situation where a lot of the bands will have these singers singing all these crazy ranges and then 10 years later, they can't even hit those. This is It feels yeah. almost fortuitous that you didn't find someone in a strange way. It really might seem like that, man. And I, I, I would be lying to say that that thought hasn't a few of those thoughts haven't like come to mind quite often thinking about like longevity and just how it kind of really fits oddly well just not having one because now we can go out and play around and have a you know this guy here and this guy here there's just so much on top of like how much we wouldn't how limited we would be if we had like a guy that was just doing it like long term i don't know if any of us could fucking deal with having to like listen to a vocalist at band practice you know i think about that all the time i just think i ashleman fucking beating on his drums and i just think god i'm so glad that there's not a fucking dipshit here that we have to fucking listen to fucking warm up and do all this bullshit. It's hilarious. It's awesome. It's but awesome. You mentioned we should talk about style and I definitely want to talk about style. One, is there such a crazy evolution of your playing clay from Inspire, the EP, up until Remember That You Will Die and you feel it even on song by song on the new album, 100%. But I'm wondering when you started to lock in on what am I doing here? And I say this because usually when I interview bass players, and I've done this for 10 years, you have people who are very root note and then have this component of melody to them. You have some bass players who look at it as a lead instrument. It should be as present in it as a guitar or what have you. And then there are many who will sit and tell the story of you want to really lock it in between the drums and the guitar player. Now, in a perfect world, you might answer and say, I'm all of those. But stylistically, you have to do different things in the dynamic of polyphia. You have to, by the nature of how the other three are playing. What was that like for you? How were you trying to find your voice or that style? It's, it, I don't know. It, um, looking back, it would have been, I don't know, just getting in the studio over time. I wasn't even on Inspire. The bass on that is all programmed and you can fucking tell. Yeah, back then we were just selling fucking tickets to whatever show we were playing at the time. I didn't, I didn't even, I couldn't even play a note on the guitar, dude. But I'm looking back at all the time spent in the studio, learning over the course of these different records that we've made. You can hear, I mean, for obvious reasons, but from Inspire to Muse, our first full-length record, you can hear not just like there being real bass on there. But experimenting with a lot of different things, that was like the first release we had where you hear any slapping whatsoever, distortion on bass, like anything like that. And the second record was like the same story. It really is like the first record with just not enough time spent writing it for it to sound much different. But I think when we went in to do the most hated EP... We experimented. That was a weird time to play bass in this band, for sure. Tim and Scott really wanted to experiment with a lot of sub bass and a lot of programmed drums and bass on that one. 
that was an interesting time in terms of like, all right, what do I do here? What place for me is there in this music? And it turned out really well as fate would have it. So we took what we learned from how that went. That was the first release we had where it was finally like, okay, this is like a rock band trying to do a hip hop thing and it's working well. We'd never gone out on a limb artistically like that before. So taking what we learned from that and putting it on the next album, which was New Levels, I had so much fucking opportunity on that to do whatever I wanted. There's a fucking bass solo on there. There's ridiculous slap parts. There's like balls to the wall, like, you know, more left-hand oriented parts. So right there, what we learned from the EP and applying it to that album. So doing the electronic influenced rock music started to really work. And it didn't so much sound like an experiment as it sounded as much as it did like, okay, the experiment is done. This is like what they were like really going for. How did you figure it out? for yourself as a player though are you seeking out funk and soul albums at that point are you looking on youtube what are you doing to ensure that what's happening at such a high level of performance from your side is also going to live up to it or was that already part of how you're practicing or learning what the parts tends to pan out to be and i think we're getting a lot better with this is like a lot of back and forth and communication and i mean part of it is attested to having four fucking full years to write this last thing is like sending a lot of stuff back and forth once a lot of the hooks and music are there like passing it back between me and clay ashelman our drummer and like really trying to get it right with a lot of the dynamic there's a lot of variety on this most recent album and so just making sure there were a few songs that were even like pretty hard to have like real bass on i think just like a lot of passing the ball back and forth really are you inspired by certain players are there players where you definitely can listen to an album and think to yourself this sound is something different i think about hearing that first jacko pastorius album i was old enough that it wasn't a world where we hadn't heard that sound before but i was attuned to the instrument enough to think i don't think i've heard somebody do this before and I could appreciate it, and it sent me on a very different journey than what I thought about the bass, which for me might have come from people more like Van Halen and Metallica or Deep Purple at the time. It sent me in a different headspace. Do you find that with certain players for you, or is that not how your sound comes out? Definitely, in some instances, I would say it's like that for me. I heard someone talk, say some corny shit recently about like, kind of uh, shedding light on the difference between being inspired versus like being influenced. I tend more to be influenced by guitar players, but in terms of like being inspired by a lot, the, the thing with me and like a lot of bass is a lot of it is like fucking Star Trek, right? A lot of it is like Les Claypool on stage with hat made out of like a fucking pineapple and he's like doing this weird thing where his hand looks like a trumpet and he's like, dude, you know what I mean? So I guess on that note, I tend to not necessarily be choosy, but like, yeah, maybe choosy 
with what I'm influenced by or inspired by in terms of base. I just think that without a fucking shadow of a doubt, there is just so much rush that I have listened to and drawn influence and inspiration from sonically Getty Lee. And that, I don't know if that's like hard to believe for some people because of like how our techniques and playing styles are so much different. But uh, in terms of like bass players, I don't think there's anyone that I am more inspired and influenced by, especially tonally, trying to like figure out how to make my bass sound like that without necessarily playing in the same way. I think sonically you hear it. I definitely hear it. And I'm a huge Rush fan. I had a chance to speak to Getty many, many times. Even took a bass that I wanted and bought it. Uh, so, <laughs> it's a story for another day. Yeah. Uh, but it, but sonically, I hear exactly what you're saying. It, it's almost in the creation of it, you're looking for this voice, for this instrument to be more than just something that's connecting two other instruments. I hear it 100% in your playing. It makes me act like a child, like when I hear a good Getty Lee bass line, you know what I mean? And I think that that's yeah. like, kind of like what it should do. You should want to do some Jack Black, like, thing, like when you hear a bass part. And a lot of his material, like, makes me feel that way and want to write a bass line that makes you go, like, I don't know how to, like, even put that on paper, but, like, when I'm sitting down, taking a shit, and I'm like bobbing my head back and forth thinking about something. And then I'm like, oh, dude, Getty Lee would have played it like this. And then like back to the studio the next day, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, what would Getty Lee do is a great question. Come on, that's a great way to create. What would Getty Lee do here versus just somebody else, some just straight ahead player? Musically, do you find yourself exploring how the genre has actually worked with other genres, meaning we talked a lot about hip hop. And I think back to when I was doing my original music magazines before there even was an internet and hearing things like the Judgment Night soundtrack, Biohazard and Wu-Tang Clan doing the original. They weren't the original. There was the Anthrax, Run DMC, and that whole world as well. But there has been what I would call that clashing of urban cultures many times over history. Metal has some really good ones. Like, I really do think that moment in time of that Judgment Night soundtrack was one of them. Do you look at those movements at all or think anything about them? Or is it purely new, not trying to look back, not trying to be influenced by any of that? That's a hard one to answer, especially when you look at like the 90s, which is when you had yeah. like Biohazard and Anthrax. Well, Anthrax like hitting like the, the public enemy stuff and then... Yeah, that I was in the what, 80s, but yeah, yeah. Am I tripping? Oh, late 80s, right? Late yeah, 80s? It was, yeah, around 87, 88. And then, yeah, Biohazard and Wu-Tang. And again, that Judgment Night soundtrack was, I think, really, which led right into the 90s. That probably must have been like 92-ish. So, so you're right, for sure. Yeah, I think it serves as to like where I lack in my 90s knowledge. I think the 90s for me, it's just like, Pantera, like in my face, like I just sure. can't, I don't know. I need, I, for, you know, especially, uh, in a band where we, you know, we owe a lot to hip hop and rap music. I could be better with what knowledge I have on hand of new metal and kind of stuff of that nature. I'll say it a third time, check out the judgment night soundtrack and let me know if that's is that a, really is that a movie. 
it was a movie and they just brought bands, crazy bands together. It was like Slayer and somebody crazy and Biohazard and Wu-Tang. And it was, it was like really crazy. The best thing ever. Okay. The movie did nothing, but that soundtrack was really <laughs> transformative. <laughs> I'll check it out. Definitely. All I know is yeah. the Evan, what's his name? Evan Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Yeah. He used to be in a lot of, a lot of like rock doc type stuff that I would watch on like VH1 when I was a kid. I remember his voice being like, yeah, man. No, that's all I got. Then he got into adult films. Then he got into adult films. Yeah. I just remember, yeah, the dude who's in porn. Yeah. A really great, nice guy. Like really great guy. Really passionate about music. Amazing. And bass player. Really dynamic, hardcore bass player as well, for sure. One of the big things that happened to the band that got a lot of attention is the single Ego Death with Steve Vai. And I'm wondering when you're thinking about what you're trying to do and how forward you move, do you ever hesitate on things like that because it might be seen as you're bringing back that retro or it's back from the 80s instrumental, instrumental as they used to call it, swooping sounds and as you like to call them, the, uh, the boomer bends. The boomer bends. Did you think about that? Do you see this as opportunity? Maybe the people who like that will like this. This is a great way to get our music in front of a different audience. How do you think about it? Because you're balancing what I consider to be a very creative process, a very artistic process. Thinking like, okay, we're going to put this song, we're going to do this song with Steve I and we're going to put it out. Wonder what people will think. We'd so clearly, it's not like we were a band necessarily prone at all to being like pigeonholed into being corny in the sense that our music is dramatic, but I promise this is going to pan out. I'm actually going to say something. Like, if you look at, like, what instrumental guitar music, what, and I'm not knocking fucking instrumental guitar music like some of my friends will do. But, dude, I mean, like, looking at, like, Satriani and Vi albums and, like, this and that from the late 80s and the 90s, we've done so much work on songwriting and composition that the marriage of sounds that you heard and that you were gonna hear, it was just, I hope this is making sense. We were very, we were secure enough in the compositional aspect of things that we knew the shit was going to kick enough ass for people to get what we were trying to get across. We had shit so on lock that like we knew that we could do some shit like invite a fucking 80s guitar hero into the song and that it was going to work and that we were not going to be subject to anything like, oh, look at this boomer guitar bullshit or anything like that think we were ready we were ready for it and had done enough work on our end to where the timing was right we were like mature enough to do it right and so like when you're at the point where if you're as fortunate as we are you've been blessed to have this fucking great career so far where like your fans enable you to keep refining this shit that you've been trying to get across that's stuck in your head, but that doesn't exist yet. Throw in the fact that Steve I is the nicest person on earth and the kindest and the most gracious and generous person on earth. You throw that in there, some timing. We played a show with him a couple years ago and he fucking thought we were tight. 
things just worked out and we're all really happy with that song. I think in that sense, the like, finally we were blessed with the fucking opportunity to do that. Like it just made so much fucking sense. When in the process did you realize it's Steve I? Was it written with him in mind? Was it pre-done before you even started writing? We're going to do a song with him. Where in the process does he come into the picture? I think early on, we decided that on this record, we were going to have probably just one guitar feature. On our lat, like we've had what feels like fucking hundreds of guitar features in our music. And I think, <laughs> you know, just like we wanted a, it to be a potent, okay, there's one guitar fucking feature. And it's either Steve Vai or Eddie Van Halen and Eddie Van Halen had just died. So it was like, okay, well, it's going to be Steve Vai or nobody. So hopefully Steve says yes. And that is honestly how it went. What's amazing is I'll tell you the feeling I had, which was in watching in particular the video for it, going back to Star Wars or great moments in film, it felt like a great cameo. When it happens, you're like, yes, it felt really right. Yeah, dude, it's almost kind of a tearjerker, you know? I remember watching like the final cut of the video where Steve's shit had been put in and just being like, oh, yes, dude. Yeah, it's like when the fucking people who have been in love the whole time during the movie, they finally kiss at the end and you're just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, girl, go get it. It was beautiful. And it was a privilege to be a part of in that sense. Do you think there is a Clay bass solo album somewhere down the line? Is that something you would even conceive of because of how you operate and create? Or do you feel that the canvas is still so vibrant and polyphia that all your music comes through there? I get a good creative buzz off of what I do with my band. When I put out some music, I don't know that it's going to be like a bass solo album necessarily. I don't know what that would look like. We're still over here trying to make instrumental music cool. I don't know how to make bass instrumental music. Maybe it wouldn't be instrumental. Who knows? But doesn't have to be. Yeah, I'd like to one of these days, if I can put some more time and attention into the production end of things, i.e. learning how to produce, I think it would be worth checking out. I'd kind of like to expand my creative toolbox a little bit before I would ever do anything too expansive. But I don't know, maybe like a song somewhere down the line. I have a couple of people I'd like to make some shit with. So the new album is called Remember That You Will Die. And for me, it's a whole different album from New Levels, New Devils. How do you think about new music now? Do you find yourself being challenged to think about new music? Are you already in the creative process for new songs, new material? Does it sound immediately different from what's happening on Remember That You Will Die? How does that work in terms of there's an album, there's going to be more shows, but you're probably still thinking new songs? Well, yeah, man, I'm still listening to Remember That You Will Die on CD in my car. That's like all I am listening to right now. And getting ready to play it all live and shit. To say, you know, like, does the new shit, like, what does it sound like? Well, I mean, it's like, Remember You Will Die is so diverse anyway. And there's so much shit that didn't make it onto the record. I think we're taking a lot of that 
right now and pulling it back out and taking a look at it. We're always kind of toward what's on the horizon and that sort of thing, but we're looking at a lot of the shit we have right now and seeing what we can do with it. Yeah. So I guess it, and it does sound like, remember the Yule Die in the sense that it is fucking uncategorizable. It's just more shit you've never heard before. But there were definitely a few things on this last record that we didn't have the means to do even, you know, six months ago that like now we have the ability to, or we have the perspective to go back and figure out what it was we're going for. We have so many fucking things up our sleeves. At this point, I'm like, oh my God, new shit. How will we even do it? We just put it out. But that's just me, you know? I think I need to go sit down in the studio with a couple of my buddies and just, okay, I can do this now. There's, I have the energy to do this. And dynamically, the four of you live near each other. It's a physical thing where there's a jam room studio. What's the actual dynamic of what the band is now? We're all finally, as of like about, you know, think about it, last year, we're all back in the same area. We jam over at Tim's house when we jam. But I'm just even like with this little release cycle that we just did. We've all been like together constantly, which as a musician, I think I'm happiest in that habitat when I'm seeing my dudes constantly, consistently. And I think we operate better as a band like that when we're like together talking doing that sort of thing. You physically play together to get the ideas or are you sending each other pieces? And oh, no, dude, the, no. They're all, all over email, baby. Yeah. Yeah, that's mostly what it works like. Even when we're like all in the same house together at a session or something, it's email. So what's it like when you have to rehearse for a tour then? I mean, that must be a very, that's, it sounds like you're prepping for, for a triathlon here. It's pretty time intensive. We start practicing. We really refined our dudes towards rehearsals after the our first tour back from the pandemic and nowadays we get together about two two and a half months ahead of time i think we're going to do three on this one and uh, we basically just go to tim's like four days a week and uh, hang out for five or six hours and just run the shit slower than could be recognizably possible you can't even tell what song it is because you're playing it so fucking slow and that's been really cool. I don't know. Normally it would be, it, it's a good, I think it's been a good habit for us to play shit really slow. And maybe this sounds like a preschooly thing to even bring up, but. It's cool. It's like going to therapy or something with like your friends where you're learning how to slowly do this again. And just like the basics. It's really cool. I don't know. It's like hard to explain, but just getting together and really grinding out the fundamentals together makes rehearsing for a tour feel more like you're actually growing together rather than cramming for a test together or something. I'm sure after that many practices, your hands and your calluses, I'm reminded of the story where Billy Sheehan was talking about the Eat em and Smile tour with Steve I. And he said by the end of the rehearsals, he felt like he could crack coconuts with his bare hands because yeah. the calluses shrunk from practice. Oh, uh, dude. It sounds like that's what you go through. <laughs> yeah. I've had to do many a rehearsal with like band-aids. Super, I used to have to, to super glue band-aids to my fingers for a lot of the more plucking intensive shit. And I think at our last, last time we rehearsed, 
over the course of that month, I cried so many times just because of like all the emotions. And you're just like, ah, I want to rise to the occasion and fucking follow my destiny. Ah, Just, and you want to make your friends proud. And it's just, I don't know. It's becoming more of a really cool, like a more transformational sort of thing to go through together. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time, Clay. The new album's called Remember That You Will Die. And I got to tell you that Polyphia has become the top music and band that I go to. I love it. It just, I wish I had, I think my life would have been very different if I had heard this when I was 13. Let's just say that. (laughs) I appreciate it. We're just grateful that there are other people who hopefully feel the same way. And it's been like, just a really, really distinct privilege to to make this music. Amazing, man. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Uh-huh.